0: If you have an offer and you want to quote unquote, have it be accessible to people who can't afford it at your normal price, wait until your business is on really strong financial footing before you go offering this accessible price.
1: Early in her finance career, Jacquette Timmons saw firsthand the economic crash of 1987 and the mixed reactions and behaviors people exerted around their newfound hardship. Her observation ultimately inspired her to start her own money management business in 1995 that would eventually pivot to provide behavioral focused financial coaching. She's now working to dispel money myths and shift the dynamic away from thinking financial health is only about numbers. You're about to hear Jaquette reveal the secrets to financial health she's learned over her many years traveling the world to talk about the intersection of emotions and money. Coming up, Jaquette explains our perceived value of money as taught at a young age through the things that we see in our close environments. Why it's important to put the health of your personal finances first, how the tendency to be accessible to everyone leans away from success. She shares tips on how to develop relationships that drive the best PR around your business. And finally, why Jaquette says staying true to yourself is the key to delivering your best possible work. This is the Entreprenista Podcast presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Jaquette, I am so excited to have a conversation with you today for so many reasons especially because I'm always looking to learn more about money and managing money. And as an entrepreneur, it is a topic that is so important for all of us. So thank you so much for for being here with me today. And I cannot wait to have this convo with you.
0: Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. I would love to hear a
1: little bit about your background and what led you to become a financial behaviorist.
0: Yes, I love telling this story. So I've only ever worked in financial services and I started in 1986 and I got a chance to see up close and personal the stock market crash of 1987. So I'm a year out of undergrad, still very, very green behind the ears and not really understanding the the magnitude of what is happening, but realizing based upon how people are responding that something significant is going on. But what fascinated me in terms of how people were reacting is that there were literally some people that if they could have jumped out of a window because of how much money they lost for themselves and for their clients, they would have. And then there were others that were completely calm. So today I have language to say that, oh, that was people responding from a behavioral standpoint, but I didn't back then. All I noticed was that one event happened and yet there are two drastically you know, different responses to it. And I didn't understand why they weren't talking to one another, Mm -hmm. (laughs) trying to get the, you know, the other side of the spectrum to come over to their side. So that's the first seed that was planted. The second seed was working in the private bank, managing money for high net worth individuals, and really coming to appreciate and understand that yes, the people's whose money I was a part of, you know, the team managing, they had a lot more zeros and commas behind those zeros than my family. But at the end of the day, the questions were the same, the challenges were the same, the frustrations, the desires, they just simply had more to work with. Mm-hmm. So wanting to do a couple of things really shift the dynamic away from thinking that success with money is purely about the numbers is one of the reasons that I embarked on this journey. And then the other is to also dispel this myth that if you have more money, that automatically, or as I sometimes like to say, automagically preempts you from some of the financial challenges and vicissitudes of life. And that's just not true. Why is that not true? And why do we make those assumptions? I think we make those assumptions because it's easier, right? It's kind of like an escape hatch that lets you off the hook from doing some of the really hard work of looking at your behavior, your choices, the emotions that come up and dealing with the emotions, you know, looking at your motivations. And then also, quite frankly, looking at the systemic factors of the context in which you are making the kinds of decisions that you're making. So I think sometimes it's just easier. As, as a consumer, it's easier. And then, you know, in terms of structurally, it's easier because if you can bog people down with just focus on the numbers, you don't have to help them with other aspects of money.
1: When did you go from working in the corporate world, in the banking world, to starting your own business?
0: 1995. So I've been at this for a little bit of time, and really when I started, and my business today looks nothing like what it did in 1995, right? So in 1995, I started my business with the entire intent of doing exactly what I had been doing at Bankers Trust, which was managing money for high net worth individuals and smaller foundations. And, you know, four years into that, it was just like a reality check of not making as much money as I had been making at Bankers, not having as much under management as back then or even what I had projected. And yet every single time I thought, okay, I'm going to quit this and go in-house somewhere, I'd get one more client. And if you understand how assets under management work, you get paid a quarter in arrears. So whatever the market value of the ma- the assets that you have under management are, say on December 31st, you will get paid in January based upon that. So mm. I'd always get one or two more clients that would help me get through the next quarter or the next six months. And so I was like, well, maybe I'm supposed to stay here. And um, it was actually a coach who helped me to see that that wasn't the case. And so I made a shift in 2000 away from, or I started to make the shift because I didn't close it down entirely then, but I started to make the shift in 2000 away from managing money and focusing more on education and speaking as it pertains to money.
1: What was that experience like pivoting your business because so many women over the past year especially because of the pandemic were forced to pivot their business and you know change their business model or different practices And I know that can be, you know, very hard. You know, you have all of this built up that you've built this business and maybe something hasn't worked out well and you're having to change And you know, similar to that feeling with money where it can be uncomfortable. That can be an uncomfortable feeling in business too. So how did you deal with that change and any advice that you can share based on your experience making that pivot and where that's led you to now today?
0: Yeah, I, I would like to think that my reaction was normal <laughs> and that, you know, I resisted it. I was like, what do you mean? Because my ego was so tied up into, I want to be a money manager. And so that's your ego and identity. And then then you look at the data. What was really interesting is I started my business in 95, as I explained, and in 1996, I got my first speaking engagement for a national nonprofit. And that begat referral after referral after referral, so much so that I was traveling across the country for both large nonprofits and large corporations like AT&T. t sent me to St. Thomas to do a workshop for all of their Caribbean-based employees. Like, oh, wow. How much better can you get, right? You work during the morning and hang out on the beach in the afternoon. Yeah. Um, But I didn't see it as a business. I saw it as this is something that I do to supplement my investment management work and I'm having a ton of fun doing it. And I had been working with a coach and he's the one that said to me, why are you trying to convince people to have you manage their money and you're not paying attention to the fact that people are coming to you saying, hey, why don't you do this for us? So, you know, a part of the reaction is getting over my whole ego and the identity that I had attached to you know, wanting to be a particular type of person and have a particular role, but then also realizing that when he posed that question and I went and looked at my numbers, I was gobsmacked because 80% of my revenue had been coming from education and I didn't know it, even though I had been tracking it and it was right there in front of me. I wasn't looking at it in the way that I should have. I wasn't asking the right questions that would have illuminated that for myself. Mm. And I know that marketing has, of course, changed from
1: the early 90s to what it is today, especially with social media and the growth of websites and the internet. How were you able to get some of those first clients? And what is your marketing strategy like now with your business? Because I see you everywhere on Good Morning America and on podcasts. So I know you know a thing or two about personal branding.
0: Yes. And I think, you know yes, the platforms have expanded greatly since 1995, 1996 to today. But I think the core of it is cultivating relationships, cultivating those relationships and being top of mind so that when an opportunity presents itself, someone just naturally thinks of you and then puts your name in the hat. That's been the the case for probably 99.9% of the clients with whom I've worked and it is absolutely the case with all of the media and I'm so grateful for all of the different media but all of it came about because someone said hey you should talk
1: to that's awesome I talk about this all the time with personal brand building and relationships people genuinely like to do business with people that they love people that they trust and if a friend shares with them you know you should work with this person or and then they start seeing you on social channels. And then in the media, it builds that trust and it builds that connection. So absolutely. Did it it take you a long time to realize this or were you, you know, working on building your personal brand and, you know, focused on building these one-to-one relationships pretty early
0: on? So I think I had the benefit of being naive, right. And not realizing that I was actually building a personal brand. I have just always been interested in people and curious about people and wanting to connect with people and really wanting to have substantive, not transactional relationships with them. So I don't know if I could say that I was intentional about saying, okay, I want I want my personal brand to be X and I'm gonna do these things. It just was one of those things in my case where it became organic. And then mm-hmm. I realized, oh, I do have a brand. <laughs> Totally. I
1: I can definitely relate to that. So I would love to understand a little bit more about how your business operates now and who are the clients that you typically work with? What are your clients like? Because many of our listeners, of course, are entrepreneurs or thinking about starting businesses. And I know many of us are looking for strategies to grow our wealth, manage our money in our business. So would love to know what your dream and ideal clients are.
0: Yeah, so there are three key pillars to my business. I do one-on-one coaching mostly with entrepreneurs and small business owners, so that's one pillar. I'm a four-hire speaker for corporations, uh, law firms, conferences, both both large and boutique nonprofits, and then I also host my own events and as you might imagine, those are at least two very distinct audiences, but the common thread is that in each of those different pillars, I'm showing up to talk about the human side of money. I'm showing up to emphasize that it's not so much that you manage money as it is that you manage your choices around money and really getting people to go beyond the numbers. So in terms of the one-on-one coaching that I do and the events that I host, as I mentioned, it's typically entrepreneurs, and small business owners. For the corporations, it's a plethora of folks or industries and and companies and firms. But the one thing that they all have in common is that they've recognized that their wellness initiatives need to include financial wellness. Yes. So, so (laughs) important.
1: How has your business changed over the past year and a half since everything started with COVID? Because I know you were doing a lot of in-person events.
0: So it's interesting. It really reinforced the importance of having a diversified portfolio, if you will, of different business aspects. So one of the things that I always tell my own clients, and, and I bring this in from when I managed money is the importance of having a diversified portfolio and recognizing if you add an asset, what impact will that have? And similarly, when you take something away. And so for me, the benefit of having one-on-one coaching and speaking and events was that there's multiple streams of income, right? And so when the pandemic happened, I was just like, oh crap, what is gonna happen? Because here in New York City anyway, we got the notice on the 12th of March that things are shutting down. I was supposed to be leaving on that Sunday for a speaking engagement and clearly that was not gonna happen. And then as you see, everything else started shutting down including my own events that I host. So fortunately, everybody, at least on peer-to-peer speaking, easily pivoted to doing things virtually. And the coaching didn't you know, slow down. Yes, the corporate stuff and the law firm stuff went completely by the wayside, but that was made up for by the speaking engagements that I did inside other people's masterminds. It was made up by the fact that instead of doing the dinners in person, they were also now on zoom and that actually expanded the number of people who could join so i had people from all across the us and canada who normally wouldn't come to new york just for a dinner <laughs> so the the um, the impact was that it it actually once i got over the initial shock showed me the value of doing the dinners virtually and perhaps in 22 i'll go to a hybrid model of some dinners in person some on Zoom, but then it also created a space for me to work inside other people's masterminds, which was not something I had ever considered prior to. And so I'm really grateful and I wanna give her a shout out because she's the one that planted this seed. I'm really grateful for Tara Newman. Because she's the one who reached out to me and said, hey, my mastermind was supposed to be going out of the country. Obviously, we're not going to do that. So we're pivoting. And I know pricing is something that they have a challenge with. What do you think about presenting your pricing made human masterclass inside of it? And I was just so grateful for that. And then especially because she paid me right rate, didn't negotiate that. So it just opened up, you know, a wonderful Pandora's box of opportunities because that led to other speaking engagements, again, within other people's masterminds.
1: Absolutely. I think if, you know, 2020 taught us anything, it's just about the importance of resilience and then pivoting and being open to what else can come out of you know situations that we were not expecting and being able to find the good from all of these all of these situations that Absolutely. we've been put in and you've definitely been able to to do that. Jecked when did you write your book?
0: My book came out in 2009. And I wrote it 2007-2008, because I went the traditional publishing route. So Ah, it was due to the publisher in 2008. So, you know, research, 2006, research and starting to write it 2006-2007, and then it had to be complete by 2008.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about the process of writing a book? I know many of our entrepreneurs are considering self-publishing, some are thinking of pitching to some of the larger companies. What was that experience
0: like and any tips you can share? Oh my goodness, it was much longer than I expected. <laughs> Cuz when you you know, I don't I don't know if most people recognize the long lead time between when a book comes out versus when you actually start working on it. So what was the process like at the end of the day? I loved it. You know, it was it was really an awesome experience. I wouldn't do it in that way again, meaning I, you know, worked during the day and every night I was either doing you know, interviews or research or writing. And I lived that way for many, many months of working, you know, from early in the morning until like 11 o'clock at night. Wow. That part I wouldn't want to do again. But the idea of, you know, observing a pattern. And for me, that pattern was recognizing that a lot of college educated, high earning women weren't having the important conversations that they needed to have with their mates about money. And I was curious and I wanted to know, well, why is that? <laughs> so for me, you know, the way that I tackled the intersection of love and money in my book was looking at what changed over the last 40 years, socially, politically, economically, and from a familial standpoint, that influenced how we as women showed up in relationships in the context of money. Mm. So interesting. Yeah. So the and, the, and the, in terms of the process, you know, I, I hired a book proposal editor, someone who could, you know, edit my book proposal because that's what you utilize to secure an agent. And then I got an agent and then, you know, the agent shopped it and I got a publisher. So there are many different steps along the way. And do you
1: still use your book as a, a marketing tool now for business? I do,
0: but you know, (laughs) not as much as I should. (laughs) So I was um, doing an event and I was giving away books. And one of my friends said, well, where's your book? I was like, oh yeah, I need to include my book in there. (laughs) So (laughs) um, I don't do as great of a job as I should at uh, promoting my own work in that regard. So yeah, I can get better at that. Do you
1: think you're going to do an update on that book or another book in the future? I want
0: to do another book in the future. An update on that one, I'm not really sure of. But I really appreciate the fact that I was one of the first to start talking about financial intimacy and, you know, really making the conversation around one's relationship with money more mainstream. Next
1: up, you'll hear why you need to price your side hustle as a side hustle and the mistake to avoid when shifting to full time. Jaquette, I'm gonna share a little story with you now about my personal experience with money and learning about money. And my experience is that growing up, I was not taught anything in elementary school, middle school, high school, college, to the point where, and I think I've shared this on a, a previous episode as well, I, when I had credit cards, when I graduated from college, I didn't know that you pay them off each month or there's interest. Like I literally did not know that, which is just to me, mind boggling. Why do you feel that there is not a strong education around money from the time that, and maybe things are getting better now, but from the time, you know, kids are very little to learning about money in school and having this healthy relationship with
0: money. So there's a lot to unpack there because I actually think that we learn about money at a very young age, but that starts in our homes. And so I think about how, in my case, uh, my parents separated when I was two. They didn't divorce until I was 13, but minor detail. But what what that speaks to is how with me, my mother, whether I was babysitting, whether I got birthday money or any kind of money from someplace else, or whether when I was working at the mall, my mother would make me save 50% of what I earned or what was gifted to me. And her whole notion was, why can't you do that? <laughs> what was the, what was her re- what was
1: her reason behind the 50%?
0: Well, she she so here's the thing. My mother was extremely disciplined when it came to savings. Oh, that's good. Yeah. She didn't know a lot about investing. So even with her own stuff, it was really, really conservative. So there's that backdrop. But I think for her, it was just like, okay, you can have fun with it, but you don't what bills do you have? <laughs> So you should be saving. So her whole thing was, you got to save, you got to save, you got to save. And I remember going to college and seeing something at Bloomingdale's. And I was like, mommy, I want X, Y, and Z. And she's like, put it on layaway. I'm like, mommy, Bloomingdale's doesn't have layaway. (laughs) That's so funny. (laughs) And she's like, well, then don't get it. So I share all of that to say, it may not be taught in schools. But I think we are taught, whether it is intentionally or not, how to relate to money, how to talk about money or how not to talk about money. We, re- we are taught how we value money through the things that we see in our close environments, whether it's our immediate households with our parents or whomever raised you or those on you know an immediate outer circle of that. When it comes to schools, I do think that they probably should do a better job, but one of my criticisms would be that all they're going to do is focus on the mechanics of money. And that is important, but if you don't really help people to understand why do they do the things that they do, then teaching them about two plus two and how it equals to four, how's that going to make a difference? How's that going to make a difference in terms of someone coming out of college and recognizing, oh, if I get this credit card and I only pay the minimum, I'm going to be paying this forever versus if I get this credit card, but I treat it like a charge card, I will be able to have a little bit more flexibility and I'll be quote unquote living within my means. That's not something that you just get from teaching the math of money. Right. Do you think that changes need
1: to happen in our you know, lower school systems and, and universities so people are more equipped to understand you know, how to take care of their finances and how to have a better relationship with money and, and what can be done right now?
0: You know, I think if two things and, 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 you know, granted, this depends on, you know, family capacity, right? So I got an allowance. If if, if you have a family where you get a allow, an allowance, but you're taught at a very early age that, that all of that $5 doesn't go to you, like some of it goes to savings, some of it goes to your, you know, giving bucket, if you will, and some of it you get to spend. I think that's a teachable moment. I think in schools, if you can have like, bake sales or, you know, something that has to do with sales. Yes. You then teach children at a very early age about the importance of selling, because I think so many of us shy away from selling because we don't want to be the stereotypical used car salesperson. And yet we are selling every single freaking day. And so if we learn how to do that at a very young age, we'll be less intimidated by doing it when we are further along you know, in our journeys as young adults, adults and, and beyond. So I think if in your family or you as someone starting a family, you can give your kids an allowance and, sh- you know, teach them how the, the dollar amount that you give them is not all theirs. That's one way to start. And I think if schools can participate and have each, each student participate in some sort of sales activity that not only teach, teaches them about selling, but it teaches them about money. Absolutely. I share all the time. I got
1: my entrepreneurial start selling Girl Scout cookies. And even though I didn't actually make that money, because that all goes back to the troop, I got that experience selling. And I remember that feeling when I was recognized as a top seller and it it became, you know, addicting. I was always looking for new trends and things to sell. I sold baby babies and went door to door selling friendship bracelets. So, (laughs) but I will say even having that experience selling, I still didn't have the understanding of you know, money management. So let's talk a little bit about our entrepreneurs who are starting businesses and many of them are bootstrapping their businesses. What are some of the first steps that they can take when looking to make better choices around their money?
0: So, you know, I have made many mistakes in my business and some of them I will chalk up to those are mistakes that I needed to learn. The one mistake, though, that I wish I had not made, and I want to encourage others to uh, keep this in mind is either don't use your own money to start your business or have a cap on how much of your savings you will actually tap into to either launch it or to help get it through a rough patch. And that stems from me really coming to respect the idea that one of the best business decisions that you can make is to put the health of your personal finances first. And so often, whether it's, you know, bootstrapping your business or if you're raising capital, so much of the messaging out there is you give your business everything including your financial future, right? And you go into debt and you do this and you do that. And my whole thing is, yeah, there are times when you have to, you know, perhaps borrow and all that other stuff, but it needs to be strategic. And you need to make sure that you're not doing it so that you are you are putting your present and your future at too much of a risk that you can't recover from. So my one advice would be, To, if you can, don't use all of your own money and have a cap. And then also make sure that as you're making decisions, you're always weighing how is this going to impact the health of my personal finances?
1: Do you help people figure out, you know, when they, can be in the right financial position to turn their side hustle into a full-time business? Because many entrepreneurs start out working full-time, starting their venture on the side and trying to build it up until they can really you know, leave and do that full-time. Do you help them figure out when to do that? I do.
0: And the other thing that I help them to make sure that they're not falling into the trap of is when they're doing it as a side hustle, pricing it as if it's a side hustle, Mm -hmm. because you don't, because as a side hustle, it perhaps doesn't have the same sort of responsibility that it would if you were doing it full time. And so when people do that, and then they make the shift to full time, they don't adjust their pricing. And so then, you know, the revenue is not flowing the way that you had projected um, because of that. That quote unquote, small yet significant uh, detail. So one of the things is yes, I do help them figure that out. But what one thing that anybody can do is to make sure that when you're pricing your services, that you're not saying, Oh, well, I don't need this to help me with my rent or my mortgage, like act like it does need to contribute to your rent or your mortgage. And what how would you price it if you weighed that into the equation? That is such a great
1: tip. Any other lessons learned that you can share based on your experience launching your business?
0: There is a tendency to want to be accessible to everybody. We don't want to turn anybody away. We don't want to be, this may not apply to everybody, but for a number of people, you don't want to turn anybody away. You don't want to be perceived as being exclusive. And so you price in such a way that you're more focused on the people who are not gonna really help you to have a thriving business. And that doesn't mean that you're discounting those folks in terms of their humanity, but you do need to be clear around, if you have an offer and you want to quote unquote, have it be accessible to people who can't afford it at your normal price, I say, Wait until your business is on really strong financial footing before you go offering this accessible price. That's
1: such a great tip.
0: Can you share
1: something that you were just most proud of that you've accomplished from running your business over the years?
0: Oh God, it's so hard to pick one.
1: <laughs> okay, you can definitely name a few because we should always be celebrating all of our wins.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, goodness, A, starting it and, and, you know, starting it at a time when there weren't that many women, there weren't that many black women starting their own investment advisory firm. So that's one thing I would say I'm proud of. Um, I'm proud of being able to listen to sometimes feedback that was hard to take from coaches that were like, you're going in the wrong direction, (laughs) I'm proud of having a teachable spirit. I'm proud of, you know, my capacity to observe and notice patterns because that's what led to my book. And that opened up an abundance of platforms for me. I'm proud of how I pivoted last year and took advantage of that. Um, And, you know, on a a more, more minute basis, I'm proud that, you know, this past, what, June 15th, I was able to pay my quarterly taxes with ease, Like that's a pretty darn good deal. So, (laughs) you know, sometimes I think when we, when, when we're asked that question, we focus on the bigger things and we forget about the significance of, yeah, you know what, being able to pay my quarterly taxes with ease was a pretty darn good thing. That's awesome.
1: And for those who can't see me right now, because this is audio, I'm holding up my heart digit card and giving you lots of love on that because you. it's it's not easy being a business owner and having to be sure you're, you know, setting aside money for taxes every quarter and yes. paying. That's actually, and I, we were just on a entrepreneurista league call uh, last week. We were having one of our new member orientations. And um, there was a woman on there who said, you have to remember that as a business owner, your biggest expense is actually your taxes. And she helps work with people to minimize that expense. But a lot of people don't realize if you make a dollar, many a times you're paying, like your mom said, 50% of that. Right, exactly. exactly. So we need to we need to lower that so we can uh, keep, uh, yeah. keep our wealth and, and spread the wealth to other, other women
0: business exactly. owners. And if I can add one more tip now yes. that you've said that, because I think this is really helpful too. Whether you use a bookkeeper or not, or you do the bookkeeping yourself, I think it's really important that you never get to the point where A, you're not looking at your own numbers, and B, you know, as long as it's feasible, that you are the one entering those numbers into a spreadsheet. Because let's say you sell something for $1,000 and you, you know, enter it into a spreadsheet and you're like, okay. Okay, I'm going to put X amount for business savings, and then I've got to put X amount for taxes. And you see what that net number is. That really, really, I think can be insightful for then making you say, well, wait a second. Yeah, I charged a thousand but i'm actually being paid 700 or 650 for this scope of work how do i feel about that because i think far too often people focus on how do they feel about the number that someone is paying them not the number that they are able to keep mm. and that can be very different that's a very very good point thank
1: you for thank you for sharing that yeah
0: and, I, and, I, and the reason why I say um, do it yourself is because sometimes when you are working with a bookkeeper and they're just, sh- you know, showing you the reports, you don't see that minute detail. And that minute, minute detail could prove to be really beneficial when you're thinking about your individual services and your portfolio services and your pricing that you are applying to it. Definitely.
1: So for entrepreneurs who are really looking to figure out a a money plan for themselves, if they want to work with you, what is that process like? So if they reach out to you, what happens next?
0: Well, we always have a discovery call so that I can learn a little bit more about the person in their business and what they want. And then if it's like, okay, let's move forward. My process is we always start with what you want money to do for you personally. And so we're looking at the vision that you have for your personal finances. And then we start asking the question, if we change nothing about your current business model, would you be able to fulfill that? And for most people, the answer is no. (laughs) And for the rare instance where someone says yes, then the question is, are you okay with how long it would take? So we first start with, you know, what is it that you want money to do for you personally? And then we start interrogating your current business model to look at your offers, um, to look at the pricing of those offers individually and as a portfolio, and then begin the process of making some tweaks to it. And those tweaks involve re-examining your relationship with money and seeing how that shows up With in your business, looking at your relationship with yourself and how that shows up in your business, literally looking at your relationship with your business, and then looking at the relationship that you have or want to have with your people, your customers, your clients, and your prospects, because all of that really comes together to have an impact on whether or not you have a thriving business and thus a thriving life. So I always want people to, as I say, be successful, profitable, and not broke not broke financially, not broke energetically and not broke creatively.
1: Those are such great tips. And is working with you, you know, something that happens over the course of a couple of weeks, a couple of months, forever, what what does that look like?
0: Um, It's typically six months. So we have 12 calls over that six-month period. But then, you know, I always ask for weekly updates. I always ask my clients at the end of the week to share me what were their ahas, their wins, what were some of the emerging questions that unfolded as they went through the week. So we have calls twice a month, but there's weekly contact because they're giving me updates on how things are going. And in some instances, there may may be SOSs. (laughs) You know, I've got a proposal, I don't know what to do. Or this client did X, I don't know what to do. Um, so the, the process is, you know, six months, 12 calls. And, you know, it's, it's about really understanding what the person wants and reverse engineering back into that, both from a business standpoint and a personal finance standpoint.
1: And I meant to ask you this question earlier when we were talking a bit about some of your press appearances and PR appearances. You've been featured all over on platforms like Good Morning America, podcasts, and, and so many other, other places. And many of our entrepreneurs are looking for ways to be able to get press and to be able to stand out. How have you been able to get some of those incredible placements? Did you do it on your own? Have you worked with PR agencies and any tips you can share?
0: So I haven't worked with any PR agencies. It really has come from relationships. So I can't recall, I mean, my very, very, very first media appearance was on a Fox New York channel back in the 90s. And that came because I met someone at a networking event. CNN for my book came about because someone who is the wife of a good friend of mine works at CNN and works not even in the news division, but was like, hey, we're having this event for professional Blacks, you should come. I went and I met the producer for CNN Money at the time. And so it's, I I cannot overemphasize the importance and value of cultivating your relationships and not, again, not being transactional about it because you never know who knows whom and how those connections and those dots may lead to an opportunity for you
1: absolutely and look we were introduced through a, a mutual mutual connection exactly. and friends, and that this is how it yes. all works in business and courtney and i we talk about this all the time when we first started Fly, we joined networking groups and we learned you know so much about obviously the power of networking but going back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation just really building real authentic relationships. And one of the groups that we had initially joined, um, their motto was givers gain and just being willing to give and to help others. And it always comes back, but you also have to ask. So
0: (laughs) yes, you do have to ask, but here's the other thing too, right? And I I think reciprocity can be challenging for folks. And what I mean by that is, People sometimes think the exchange has to literally be one-to-one with the person. So if someone gives you something, you may feel an obligation to give them something in return, but you might not be able to, and that's okay. Pay it forward though. So make sure that you're keeping you know, the circle of giving going, but don't get hung up on if you are unable to give directly to that person. Up next,
1: Jaquette shares the quote she's inspired by that can remind us all to work on our relationships with ourselves in order to improve our relationships in other areas, including business. All right, Jaquette, this is a new segment we've been doing. We do some fun rapid fire questions. So I'm gonna ask you a few questions and the first thing that comes to your mind, are you ready? Yes. Okay. Describe yourself in three words.
0: Hmm. Curious, disciplined. I think I'm funny, but some other people don't.
1: <laughs> I say the same about myself, but my husband definitely doesn't think I'm funny. He's the comedian, so I can relate. I think you're funny. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. If you could learn one new skill today, what would it be?
0: I actually would like to learn French. So my name is French. My heritage is Jamaican-American. My mother was a Francophile, but we never spoke French at home. And I wish, I, I wish she would have enforced that. So that would be, I would love to learn French. What
1: is your most used emoji when you send a text? A heart. Love it. <laughs> what is the app on your phone that you
0: cannot live without? My podcast app. Mm, okay. Do you have the Apple podcast app? Yeah, I have the Apple podcast app and I'm an an avid runner. And so I run about 16 to 20 miles a week. Wow. And so that's where I catch up on my podcast episodes running.
1: Do you have a favorite tech solution for your business that has helped
0: you scale? I am loving ClickUp. What's that? Oh my goodness. I don't know if they would call themselves this, but I look at it as a project management tool, but it has so much flexibility. So I use it as a CRM. I use it to help me manage projects. I use it as a single repository for, you know, things like standard operating procedures, um, Things that, you know, always go into an email, you know, common links that I'm going to need to access. I just love this tool. Wow. So I'm looking it up right now as you just mentioned
1: this, and I'm texting it to Jen and our team because we're always like I no one has ever mentioned this one before, and we're always looking for new new tools and solutions. And this looks like it says it replaces Trello and some of these other ones that, that we've tried before. So I love asking this question. I <laughs> learning about new solutions. So thank you. You're welcome. Is there a, like a money or finance app
0: that you recommend? That's really great know, <laughs> oh, people are going to hate me for this because I don't have one. So, here's why I don't have one. I don't have one because I think that you need to use the app that you like. Because mm-hmm. if you don't like it, you won't use it. Yeah. So, what I always recommend to people is test out a number of them. Like, first, figure out what is it that you want the app to do, right? Mm-hmm. Do you want to just track your money? Do you want it to help you save? Do you want it to help you invest? Like, what is it that you want the app to do? So, start there, then select one or you know more than one app and and you know assess the user experience because if you love it you will use it if you don't love it you won't use it so I use a spreadsheet <laughs> obviously <laughs> obviously but I also use um quicken and so here's what's the funny part of this story. I have been a Mac person since probably 2008. Yes, because I, when I got my the first half of my advance, I bought me a new laptop and it was a Mac. Um, so 2008. And I, I share that detail because I still have a PC, but the only thing on that PC is Quicken. My CPA is dying for me to switch to QuickBooks and I am kicking and screaming that I don't want to go because I've been using Quicken and Quicken Deluxe specifically since 1995. And I'm afraid that when they switch over, those details will go away. And I'm like, (laughs) I need to know. (laughs) So I don't have a singular one to suggest. I would suggest you try several and figure out which one you like and enjoy because that's the one that you use. But again, I use a spreadsheet. I use Quicken Deluxe. A lot of my clients, though, they use apps like Mint, You Need a Budget, Spendy, Personal Capital, things like that.
1: Oh, I'm going to have to check these out. I don't really use any of those right now. So thank you. Thank you for those tips. I'm going to try them out. (laughs) Two more rapid fire questions. Yeah. Do you have a hidden talent that we do not know about?
0: Is scuba diving a hidden talent? I do Yeah. Know. I it think is? That's a, oh yeah. Okay. So um, I'm a certified scuba diver.
1: That's so exciting. Wow. <laughs> and my final rapid fire question, if you could have any superpower, what would it be?
0: I don't, it sounds so cheeky, but I think after pondering it, my superpower would be not taking people's challenges away from them because I think we learn through our challenges, but maybe if there is a way to make the pain less acute, that's what I would like to be able to do. Just enough challenge to keep you grateful and humble but not too much that you are overwhelmed and defeated. So if there's a superpower that can bring about that kind of blend, that's what I'd like to do.
1: Speaking of being grateful, what are you grateful for each day?
0: Oh my God, life. Every day I wake up and I thank God for breath. I thank God for life and a new day and a new chance to do right what I did wrong the next day and whatever I did right to continue doing it. I'm just so grateful.
1: Is there a mantra or quote that you live your life by or run your business by?
0: It's not one that I live my life by or run my business by, because it's not always top of mind. But when I do get asked this question, it comes to mind. And it's actually something that I reference in my book. And so I'm going to read it because I don't want to mess it up. (laughs) It says, revolution begins with the self in the self. And it's by Toni Cade, C-A-D-E, Bambara, B-A-M-B-A-R-A. She's no longer living, but she was a Black author, documentary, uh, filmmaker, and activist. And one of the reasons that I like it is because it reminds us that whether we're talking about business, whether we're talking about money, whether we're talking about the relationships in our lives, it all starts with the relationship that we have with ourselves. And if we want certain things to be better, sometimes we have to first work on our relationship with ourself in order to see that manifestation of that better in other areas of our life.
1: That's so important. And I could not agree more. Shiket, thank you so much for sharing your journey, your story, and all of these incredible business and money tips with us. My final question for you today is
0: what does being an entrepreneur mean to you? Being yourself, and I know that also sounds a little, you know, cliche, but when I say being yourself, what I really mean is one of the reasons you probably opted for the path of being an entrepreneurista is to do things your way. So then don't, go and get into a pool of other entrepreneurs and start doing things the way somebody else is doing it. (laughs) Like (laughs) stay true to yourself. Um, So be you, but then make sure that in the process of being you, that you are always delivering your best possible work.
1: Thank you so much, Jaquette. Where can everyone find you, follow you? And if they're interested in working with you, what's the
0: best way to reach out? Oh, thank you for that. So I love me some Instagram. So come and follow me on Instagram. What's your handle? It's my name, but it's my name, including my initial. So Jaquette M. Timmons on Instagram. So come follow me there. If you want to check out the financial wheel exercise, because you want to get a sense of either what your financial vision is or reconnect with it, you can do the financial wheel exercise by going to JaquetteTimmons.com forward slash wheel.
1: I'm gonna check that out today for sure. And I didn't even realize, I thought I was following you already. I wasn't (laughs) following you yet. So I just followed you and you'll have a couple new follows from all of our accounts today. So everyone be sure to follow Jaquette on Instagram, check out her website and reach out. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Stephanie, and this is the best business meeting I've ever had. Hey, thanks for listening and leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it. And we'd love to stay in touch with each of you. You can listen to all of our latest episodes at entreprenista.com and connect with us on Instagram at entreprenistas. We'd also love to invite you to join the Entreprenista League, our private membership community for trailblazing women. You can head over to entreprenista.com forward slash the league. We'll see you there. Wishing you a productive week ahead.